National Review Institute is cruising to Alaska. Join NR writers and other thought leaders for a special vacation from June 16 to June 23 aboard Holland America's Nordum. If you're feeling especially adventurous, you can participate in an optional land tour before the cruise from June 12 to June 15. Enjoy fine dining, entertainment, and world-class accommodations as you rub elbows with NR personalities and other special guests during panel discussions, breakout sessions, exclusive 1955 Society events, and more. Make it a family trip! This year, we've added youth programming for your children and grandchildren. Destinations include Glacier Bay, Skagway, and Juneau. To register, visit nricruise.com. That's nricruise.com. Welcome to episode 40 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast, this one with extra hurricane residue. This is the last podcast that I'll be doing before the football season begins. I have been counting down the days, and when I say that, I mean it quite literally. There's a website that lists the number of days, hours, minutes, and seconds and I've taken to looking it up from time to time and telling my wife what the latest numbers are, which, as I'm sure you can imagine, has thrilled her to no end. Back in England, I had a friend who was unnaturally obsessed with the weather, and apropos of nothing, he would start rattling off the day's stats for no one in particular. There'd be silence, and he'd just say, Oh, could get up to 24 degrees Celsius today, you know? And we'd all think, well, thank you? That's been me. We've been clearing up the dishes, and I'll say, unsolicited, four days, five hours, 13 minutes, 44 seconds until the season opener. And she'll say, that's very exciting for you in this sort of long-suffering way that has had me wondering in my idle moments how annoying I'm going to be when we've been married for 40 years instead of just nine. Well, not nine. More like nine years, 20 days, four hours and 18 seconds. My guests today are Wink Twyman and Jennifer Richmond. A former law professor and writer, Wink Twyman is a native of Richmond, Virginia. He grew up in a southern suburb, a small town south of Richmond. A graduate of the University of Virginia and of Harvard Law School, his career spans the American continent from Manhattan to Capitol Hill and San Diego. And he's recently published with co-author Jennifer Richmond, a non-conforming book on race free of dogma. That book is called Letters in Black and White, a new correspondence on race in America, and it will be our topic today. Its co-author is Jennifer Richmond, who is an international relations specialist. Jennifer supports liberalism and universal values and believes that we're at our best when protecting individual rights and freedoms. She worked in international relations for over 20 years, focusing on global geopolitics, intelligence, and East Asian policy, before turning her attention and cross-cultural skills toward the most polarizing issues within the United States and beyond. Wink and Jennifer, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Charles. All right, so what you guys did here with this book is... I think both extremely valuable and also probably the worst nightmare of the vast majority of people in the United (laughs) States in 2023. I honestly think if you asked Americans whether they would rather have a frank exchange on the topic of race or be waterboarded, they would (laughs) probably choose waterboarding. So I want to start at the beginning and talk about what inspired this. So in in the book... 
Wink writes, We began to exchange letters after Jennifer Richmond, or Jen for short, voluntarily attended a diversity training program sponsored by the city of Austin, Texas. As a white American woman, she hoped to learn how to nurture and advance social connections so that all Americans might build a genuinely diverse and egalitarian society together. But she left the training feeling despondent and disappointed. And then it says Jen published an essay about her diversity training experience in ARIO magazine. So, Jennifer, as it was your experience and then your piece in ARIO that inspired this correspondence, set the scene for me. Tell me why you were disappointed by the diversity training and why it helped prompt this book. Okay, so let me just back up a little bit and tell you uh, my, my background is as a China scholar, and I've spent a good part of my life living overseas. So living in expat communities, living in communities that were not my own home. And so this idea of diversity was always just a mainstay of my life. And it it drove my desire to continue to study and to study international relations. And so I, I just thought that diversity was baked into America. And I loved that. You know, looking from the outside in as an expat, mostly in authoritarian regimes, I loved that about our country. So I came back to America and was doing some work and started to notice these dislocations. And again, this is even before 2020 and, and COVID going on. And and as I started to research, I'm an you know analyst, like I said, China scholar, so writing research, that's my background. And I wanted to know more. And so I, as I started to research our polarization, it became very clear to me that a lot of our polarization was a result of some race issues. And so again, someone who has grown up with a variety of people from a variety of different races, backgrounds, whatnot. This was new to me. And not living in the United States, I kind of maybe thought maybe I had missed the memo, if you will. Yeah. So I said, okay, there was, it was a volunteer, I mean, paid, I paid (laughs) actually a lot of money. Uh, But, you know, it was, it was open to the public, Austin diversity training. So I went thinking that, you know, I was going to, I was going to learn more. And and again, I went, I think you already said with, with this open heart of just wanting to know what I had missed and, and to hear other stories that were not my own. And that was my intention in going. But I quickly found that that was not the intention of the diversity training it's, itself. It was actually to review and criticize and consider whiteness. So I was taken a bit off guard by that, but rolling with it. And I think that what really, really set the stage for me to write this piece was this one exercise. And we had to take a whiteness test. And at the end of this test, we got a whiteness score. And the test was ridiculous, Charles. I mean, it's stuff like I can go to the store and find the food that I like kind of thing, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it really just kind of depends on where you're at. I mean, it's, it's, it's more economics, right? So I'm just like, what is this? When we're done with this test, we have to write our score on a piece of paper and hold it up against our chest and find our place in line. And as we did so, the room was punctuated with people crying and realizing their high white privilege. And it, you know, the room ended up looking as you would expect with people with darker skin on one side and people with lighter skin on the other side. And then what we had to do is we had to break up into our affinity groups. So we had to be with other people like us. So people with darker skin were together and people with lighter skin were together. And it just, it completely dismissed the purpose of getting to know one another outside of these immutable characteristics. That was the origin of the piece that was in Aereo magazine. Okay, and then that piece is read by Wink. And Wink, you didn't just read this and think, oh, that was interesting, or you agree with it or disagree with it. You contacted Jennifer and said, let's talk about this. Why? I think at that time, Charles, I was primed to uh, reach out to a kindred spirit, uh, someone who was equally disaffected with uh, the discussion of race in the public discourse. And like Jen, let me give you a little bit of my background so you know where I was mentally at. I was born in Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy, born to a Black American family that had strong ties in 
Chesterfield County, Virginia. And during my early years, till the uh, third grade, I lived on the street where everyone was a twyman. We were all related. So my known world was simply Ken until the third grade. Well, actually, first grade, when I learned there were other people outside Twyman Road. But the point is, due to race, I attended all Black schools until the uh, third grade. In a third grade, our school system was desegregated pursuant to the Brown decision. And from the third grade until high school, I learned to engage the larger world, not only as a matter of personal preference, but just as a matter of practical sense. You know, I, I learned to desire to know more about people who are not like myself. And in junior high and high school, I was always the only Black kid in my class. But that never mattered or made a difference. And I think that's particularly important because I was of a singular American generation, the 1970s. Someone from a Southern suburban small town who very much came into my age in mainstream American culture. And then I later on went to the University of Virginia and Harvard Law School and worked on the East Coast and eventually settled here in San Diego. But, you know, my point is, in my formative years, the idea of progress was moving from a segregated all-Black world to a desegregated world of great possibility, which I sought. And so one day on April 21st, 2018, a relative said to me during a conversation, Blackness is oppression. Nothing else matters. And my head spun like the character in the Exorcist movie, because that <laughs> statement was so contrary to my whole life trajectory, let alone that of my parents or my grandparents or my grandparents' grandparents. And so in that state of mental, for lack of a better word, demoralization, I happened to read Jen's essay. It resonated with me. There was instant affinity. And I reached out to her. She reached out to me. And eventually we discovered there was something here that warranted further follow-up. And eventually uh, it ended up in our book, Letters in Black and White, A New Correspondence on Race in America, which came out May 22nd, 2023. In those letters, you avoid what you call corruption of plain English and you identify a whole bunch of terms that you've both avoided. Those terms are white privilege, white fragility, oppression, anti-racism, systemic racism, institutional racism, white supremacy, ally, and woke. So either of you or both of you, why did you avoid all of those terms? Oh, because I wanted, to, I wanted to have a real conversation, Charles. You know, the way to really talk with someone is not to limit yourself to five or ten words from the English language as a filter. The way to really talk to someone and understand someone is to have at your disposal hundreds of thousands of words in the English language. For example, in our, one of our earlier letters, Jen, I think through habit or default, mm -hmm explained that she was talking to me as out of white privilege or due to white privilege. And yeah. I stopped at the conversation at, at that moment, Charles, because, <laughs> you know, I'm not talking to an avatar for a race. I'm not talking to a caricature. I'm talking to a real human. So if you really want to talk to me, put aside the slogan words and uh, let's uh, dive into our, our affinity, our authentic affinity and kinship. But if right. you're going to use words like white privilege as a way to converse then I have better things to do with my time, Charles. Sorry yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, and I would. That's that's so true. As a matter of fact, when we first started writing, that was one of the things. I mean, there's there's we come together in this book clearly, and I think we 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 finish up the book with kind of a similar mindset. But at the beginning, it wasn't so. And Wink really did. It, you know, if you read the book, he's like, if this is the way we're going to talk, then it's really not worth having this conversation. I, you know, I came into this wanting an authentic conversation. And, and I did too. But I will say, living in this world now that is literally and figuratively colored by DEI and all the, you know, offense, oppression, oppressor, etc., I kind of tiptoed into this conversation, but what I found quite quickly was this was exactly the conversation that I wanted to be having. I didn't want to tiptoe. I wanted to ask real questions born out of curiosity 
and understand someone else's life story. And of course, as Wink also says in the book, we are just one. He is one of 40 million Black Americans. And he has he is one voice. Similarly, my voice is my own. And so we just come at this very much as individuals. That's so key, Charles. Oh, go on. I was just going to say, that's so key, Charles. The point is, when you view conversations through group identity, when you view conversations through the lens of caricatures and stereotypes, you're only going to have a stunted result. But if you start from the premise that if there are over 40 million Black Americans, there are over 40 million life stories, experiences, and perspectives, now you're talking. Now you actually can dive deep into the authentic core of a person's humanity. And I think that's important and desirable and uh, cherished, and at least for me, something Mm -hmm. that kept me going through three or four years of writing. Yeah, you write in the book, too, Jennifer, you refer to me as a black American. That is not quite right. While it is true I was born and grew to adulthood as a black American, circumstances have caused me to retire from blackness. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Well, that means, Charles, uh, and I'm still working that out as an intellectual matter, (laughs) but I think for starters, Charles, that means I will refuse and decline in public discourse to use the phrase as a black American. Why? Because I'm one person out of over 40 million people. What hotspot would it be for me to claim to speak for over 40 million? I can't even speak for the five people in my family. So to me, that's part of retiring from Blackness and also embracing your, your inner core humanity. And I think it's a, it's a more fulfilling way to be in the world. So Jennifer, you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, but you seem at the beginning of these letters to me to be more nervous than Wink was. And I have, I see a great deal of myself in the way you start these letters, because it is not pleasant often to talk about race. It can be a minefield. You were embarking on this journey rather than finishing it up. Were you nervous starting off? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was nervous. You know, again, our current cultural environment is one where one word said incorrectly, and you, you lose a lot, have the potential to lose a lot, careers, family members, friends, et cetera. And so, yeah, I walked in, I tiptoed in. Like I mentioned before, very quickly, Wink gave me the comfort to be authentic in the discussion. But we even laugh about it at first, about, (laughs) I said, maybe, is it your Black privilege (laughs) that you feel more free than me to be in this conversation. And so we did start out that way. And again, I think very quickly within the first section of our book, Wink gives me the opportunity to speak with authenticity. But I, yes, to answer your question, I walked in, I tiptoed in to the conversation. Charles, I was not nervous whatsoever. And I think for several reasons. Number one, having lived my life for over half a century in this country, having grown up in the South, Virginia, having come from a Black family, you know, the, 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 these are conversations that I could have in my sleep, number one. Number two, I think my personality, I, I tend to be a very open-minded person. I'm a very curious person. I'm intrigued by difference. And so I think that was a, an additional mitigator for me in terms of any anxiety. And number three, Doggone it all. I think I'm just a very independent-minded person. And my attitude is this kind of, well, you know, we can if you don't disagree, we can disagree without being disagreeable. That was kind of the creed I grew up in in a southern small town. And I think I still hold to that to this day. So I think for some of those reasons, I did not feel any anxiety like uh, like Jim may have may have going in. And there's a paradox here, I think. At one point in the book, Wink, you write, isn't it odd that public school integration gave me the sense of self to be myself, but diversity training Mm -hmm. robbed you of your ability to be yourself in the public square? Now, that's early in the book. Obviously, the longer the letter writing goes on, the more comfortable and, and honest the letters get. But I wonder why you think this has happened. Jennifer, there's a line in the book that I love because it's exactly how I feel. 
Uh, you say, I see so much strength and resilience in the black American experience. That is my America. That is why I fly the flag to represent all the struggles from the American Revolution to the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and beyond and to expand the ideas of equality, liberty and freedom for all. In a word, that is universalism. That's why yeah. I love this country. It is obviously true that the values in the Declaration of Independence were denied to classes of people for a long time, that American history is full of people who were hypocritical. But that doesn't mean, as the 1619 Project claims, that they are false. And yet, there are a lot of people, especially in major institutions at the moment, who are more in line with those who taught the class that you attended than with where you and Wink are. Why do you both think that that has happened? Well, I mean, my reaction would be what has happened is we're seeing the eventual fruits and results of critical race theory and critical social justice as ways of advancing a group. I think that it is a more difficult thing to appreciate the rich nuance and the rich complexity in Black American life and culture, it's far easier to reduce people to caricatures and stereotypes. It's far easier to limit language to a few dogmatic tools and slogan words. So I think part of it is simply that a core group of activists, educated and trained, in our leading law schools and colleges and education schools have settled upon this manipulative control of language where there's a binary, oppressor, oppress, as an easy way to purportedly help advance people. But in fact, it's really more about securing power for those who employ these linguistic tools. So, I mean, I hate to sound too cynical, but I, I just don't see much good faith in some of these approaches, because they seem more and more detached from the reality that I know and the reality that I knew growing up. I mean, who's better positioned to think about and understand race than someone who actually grew up as a Black person during the Jim Crow area in the American South, who entered the world in the capital of the Confederacy? It just always amazes me that I'm not cynical about race coming from that background, and yet you have people from very privileged backgrounds who will boldly say, blackness is oppression, nothing else matters. That just throws me for a loop, Charles. Well, you, you've mentioned the 70s twice now and, yes. and the desegregation of your school district. Let me ask you about that, because you are clear in your letters that you reject the worldview of, say, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and that you reject the fatalism of the movement you've just described, and that there has been enormous improvement in America, and that it's important to accept that. But also, you seem to think that our conversations about race have got worse over time. Is that true? Oh, I definitely think so. But one thing that comes to mind, Charles, when I was attending school in the 1970s in Chester, Virginia, literally within the shadow of the Confederate soldier at the courthouse, miles from a school my dad could not have attended due to public school segregation, I never, ever felt I had to self-censor myself. I felt absolute freedom to voice any and all opinions and viewpoints I might have had. Now, you may have disagreed with me, and that was fine, because we lived by a creed in that place and time. One could disagree without being disagreeable. My sense is that those who enforce a dogma uh, nowadays and things like DIE or sorry DEI training uh, and whatnot uh, no longer are receptive to different views and opinions. There's only one way of being in the world, and that is yeah, that's a that represents a decline in the quality of discourse on race. No question about that. In my little high school and junior high school in the seventies. I could have had any opinion, expressed any notion. People would have listened. They could have agreed. They could have disagreed. But the quality of the knowledge was enhanced because you had these competing ideas in the classroom. I'm not so convinced that's true nowadays if you go to some of our classrooms and leading law schools. Jennifer, you have spent a great deal of time abroad 
you're an expert in China. Is this a peculiarly American phenomenon? Hmm. You seem genuinely shocked to encounter it, and yet you are an American, and you're obviously very well read. <laughs> Is this reaction? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, honestly, that's a funny question. I've never been asked that before. What I used to do was working on geopolitics, and we always saw America as unique. America's geopolitics are one of the best in the world. Just, I mean, we've got two oceans on either side that gives us a lot of protection. We have Canada and Mexico on either side of us that gives us a lot of protection. So we kind of come into the world, I think, thinking differently because of our geopolitics than, uh, than other people. This is, has been, in the past, the land of, if you will, for, of milk and honey. We've got more waterways throughout the United States than anywhere else in the world. So that allows for very cheap capital and cheap movement of goods. And so uh, the development of America has been a much easier road than we see in other places, say like country that does not have all the natural resources or the geopolitical richness, if you will. And so I think in some ways we as Americans, we kind of look at the world and we just like assume like everything is like good and happy. And, and then when we hit a roadblock, we're, we're like, whoa, what, <laughs> what was that? Where did that come from? And so maybe it is, Charles. I mean, I'm just kind of, I'm talking a bit off the cuff, but I think that Americans really aren't used to some of that hardship, a lot of the war, a lot of the tension that we've seen. So is this uniquely American? I mean, we've seen this tension grow out. Uh, it, from America, I think when I speak to my friends who are living in Western Europe, they they see these trends that they didn't right. see originally in the UK flowing from America. And so I wonder if this isn't, I don't know that it's uniquely American insofar as it seems to have some feet and it seems to be going global, but yeah. it does feel that it started here. It does feel that that tension started here. Now, is that because we are one of the most diverse countries in the world and maybe it has nothing to do with geopolitics and just you know different people? When you put people together in this, and I'm going to use a microaggression, which I love. I love the <laughs> melting pot. I love that word. I mean, I, that's what I grew up being like. That's, that's what made me proud to be an American, right, right? right? So, I mean, perhaps it is our diversity at some, is both our strength and our weakness. And right now we have just captured the weakness and are, are riding that. And it's just a, a spasm, if you will, that we will get over. I can't resist the, t the uh, temptation to offer my own geopolitical take on the matter as someone who never lived outside of the country, who never lived outside of my home county until law school. What I find interesting is that having the opposite perspective of Jennifer, geopolitical-wise, I can tell you this, I lived in an all-Black world, certainly until the age of eight, and I only lived with uh, people who were Black until college. And in my all-Black world, Blackness equaled enterprise, never equaled oppression. I think that's a point I wanted to offer, is that uh, even in my very insular environment, I can remember my grandmother buying for her grandkids issues to Black Enterprise magazine. Why? Because as our family understood Blackness, as grandma understood it, Blackness meant enterprise. It meant John Johnson, publisher of Ebony and Jet Magazine. It meant Earl Graves, the publisher of Black Enterprise Magazine. It meant Black lawyers, Black doctors, Black bankers. So really, this new idea is just alien to me. Although, as I mentioned before, my geopolitical take is very insular at that. <laughs> well, th that's actually a good segue into my next question, which is whether both of you have a sense as to whether you are really speaking for the vast majority of people or whether you're on a fringe. Now, of course, I don't mean speaking for a given race. Sure. I mean mm -hmm. speaking to the mainstream American conception or to a, a fringe conception. I mean, I have wondered for a long time why there is not more vehement pushback against, for example, the idea that there is such a thing as black characteristics and white characteristics. Because to me, that sounds insane and racist. Mm, and if you yeah, said to mm. me, here is 
what black people are like or what mm -hmm. white people are like. The, the hair on the back of my neck would go up. Mm -hmm. The National African American Museum in Washington, D.C. a few years ago put out... A whiteness a, chart. Yeah. <laughs> we know, and we wrote about the, it. <laughs> no, of course. I, I, yeah. But some of the things on there... You know, punctuality and hard Time. work are white. Yeah, they could have been written by the Confederate president. Right, it's just. Sure, um, I've wondered why there hasn't been this pushback, and and that's a long way of asking: Is it that this has made its way into academia and various elite institutions, and is a very much top-down phenomenon, or do you think this has actually taken hold in the population? I would say both. And is my take on it. I feel like it started out, like Wink mentioned, with the expansion of critical race theory, critical social justice studies. But I do believe what I mentioned earlier, my biggest fear in this conversation is it is being indoctrinated and it is being inculcated into our K-12 education and therefore, it's becoming the mainstream conversation. And that's what worries me the most, because then you don't even know what you don't know. You don't even know what questions not to ask when that just becomes the norm, when that becomes what you've been taught and how you learn. And so I do believe that there has been pushback. Let me say one trend that I, I see happening that I get excited about is there has been a pushback against DEI. And some people have started now to say, okay, even some of the big corporations, mm, let's rethink this. It's not ubiquitous, but I have seen that pushback. So I think some people are starting to question it. Charles, you ask if we are speaking perhaps to or for a French element. I answer that question in two ways. Uh, number one, I think that there are people due to personality, temperament, upbringing, genetic composition who will always be individuals first and foremost. There are always people who will be innately driven to and drawn to self-reliance as a way of being in the world. So I think that we clearly are voicing concerns by those who are individuals in the land. I don't know what the percentages are, but certainly those people are not going away, even as we see more and more conformity in the public square and then a second answer to your question, Charles, even within Black America, there is a spectrum. You know, we often hear about a spectrum in the context of transgender discussions, but there's equally a spectrum in Black America in terms of this identification with Blackness. Perhaps 76% of Black Americans view their Blackness, their sense of Blackness, as extremely important or very important to their sense of self. But that's one end of the spectrum. You then move to the other end of the spectrum, where 26% of Black Americans, and that's probably 10 million people, 10 million people, view Blackness as of no value or very little value to their sense of self. So what I see happening is that we are, in a sense, voicing the concerns of those at that side of the spectrum, the 26% in Black America, who probably are cowed or forced into self-censorship, even within families and, and homes and communities, because they just don't want to bother. I mean, if you think about it, if you have a given family gathering and three people feel Blackness is extremely important, Black power fist, and one out of four feels, you know, what are you guys talking about? You know, I'm a human first. That one person out of four, they will tend to keep quiet, to keep the peace. They would tend to self-censor themselves for the sake of harmony. So I think what we're doing is a very important thing in terms of giving those individuals the sense that they're not alone, that they're not alone. I know that many in the community called Free Black Thought, headed by Eric Smith, are probably towards that end of the spectrum. So I would go on to, to say in terms of, quote, white America, it's just easier, Charles, to be quiet. It is just easier to be quiet. The fear of losing your job, the fear of losing your livelihood. I mean, we've seen this happen over and over again. I don't think our society is as apathetic as it might look based on the lack of conversation around this. I think that there is, like Wink said, you know, if you want to look at 76% of Black Americans, you know, see Blackness as very important to them. And then you look at, you know, at, the, at white Americans, if we're going to classify based on Im these immutable characteristics, there's a lot of fear there. And rightly so. And I so I this is why I hope the book resonates, because I think 
In the middle, there are a lot of people who are tired of not being able to have this conversation and who genuinely want that diversity, that really true diversity and that American ideas, Wink calls uh, old Americans. I think they want that. I do think that we're speaking to a larger audience that has been just cowed into silence, you know, whether it's because race is very important to them or they're just scared. Tell me about old Americans. What is that? You know, it's interesting. Although arguably we are assigned race at birth, (laughs) I think, in fact, many Black Americans and many white Americans who can trace our ancestry to before 1800 are related. We are probably genetic cousins to the fourth degree or the fifth degree. So my idea, Charles, is that we know genetically and emotionally and psychologically that people tend to have a strong empathy for those they view as kinfolk. For example, I have a natural attraction to people who are Twyman's because I am a Twyman, and I grew up on Twyman Road, where everyone's a Twyman. I was driven to know my Twyman ancestors for some visceral reason. My hope is that if more Black Americans and white Americans of long lineage in this country examine their genetic family tree, their DNA connections, they'll recognize, my God, that person that I thought was the other, the alien, is in fact a blood fourth cousin, a blood fifth cousin. We share the same immigrant ancestors that came over from England, Kent, England, to Virginia in the 1660s. And my sense is that we can hide, I hate to use that word, but we can hijack one's natural tendency to have empathy for blood kin through the rubric of old Americans and therefore redefining race in that sense. So I think some people would say to that, well, yes, fine, we can go back and we can find these connections. But very often that was because one group of people hideously abused another. But then what comes through in the book is neither of you think that beyond acknowledging that that happened, which we absolutely should, and teaching that it happened, which we absolutely Mm -hmm. should, neither of you think that's too important, right? Well, I think, and I think Jen mentioned this in the book, I think that Horrible things happen in the past, and I think that's very important to acknowledge. But you have to move on. You're not living in the year 1650 or the year 1750 or even the year 1850. The year 2050, Charles, is only 30 years away in the future. The year 1750, it's hundreds of years in the past. So I just really think that there's more value in focusing on the future benefits of blood kinship than the distant past particulars uh, of abuse. And moreover, people make these statements about abuse in the past, which we know happened, but they can never offer concrete particulars. And that always concerns me. If you're going to justify your disaffection from your blood kin because of distant, undocumented, unrecorded abuses, you know, give me some concrete evidence. Show me what you're talking about. Because in some cases... There were relationships between black and whites that were out of love, affinity, connection. Uh, I could give you tens of examples right now, but we never talk about those. When we talk about race, there's always this tendency to grab towards, to lean towards the negative, the oppressed. But we never lean towards the other side of racial history, the positive, the side of agency, the side of Black enterprise. I'm thinking, for example, the first Black to receive a master's degree from an American college. His parents had a relationship, and it was consensual. Reverend Limerell Haynes. His son married a white woman, consensual. And there are other examples. John Mercer Langston in our book, his parents were in a common-law marriage. His father was white and a planter. His mother was a free Black. I think we have to not let the undocumented horrors of the past blind us from using blood kinship going forward as a way to improve our conception of Americanism. One of the things that I mentioned in the book with regards to this issue of mixed race is, I mean, at some point, 
we all have sinners and saints in our family tree. And so at some point, if we are teaching, you're only looking for the ugliness, you're only looking for the sinners, that just carries on into our life, not just you looking at our ancestors, but carries on into our life today. And then we're teaching our kids to live like that into the future. So it's not to deny that this happened, but it is to say, how can we find a better way of having that conversation? If you think about other history, it is, to my eyes, peculiar the extent to which people do want to continue these feuds, if you will. I mean, I grew up in England. My grandfathers had to go and fight Nazi Germany. They didn't (laughs) want to. One of them was a carpenter. The other was a farmer. They left their small towns, and suddenly they were being shot at by one of the great world tyrannies. In the United States, their contemporaries were sent into the Far East against the Japanese empire. It was astonishingly brutal, but it would be frowned upon, and quite rightly so, if you said now to people in the United States, well, do you hate the Japanese? <laughs> you know, right. Are you worried about the Japanese? Charles, Charles that's so, such a great point. I was thinking about this the other day. One of my dear friends here in San Diego, lover, 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 is uh, Susan. I'll mention her last name. Susan just happens to be the great, 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 that sounds about right, granddaughter of a man who was a slave catcher in Tidewater, Virginia in the 1790s. How insane, Charles, would it be for me to give Susan the snake eye because of something a great, 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 great grandfather did in the 1790s? That would be deranged, wouldn't it? I think it would. Now, let me present the counter argument here, which is not my view, but which you would hear a lot. And that is that it's all very well to be a universalist, as the three of us are. It's all very well to talk about human beings rather than groups, as the three of us do, to focus on individuals. And it's all very well for you, Wink, to retire from blackness. But that there are still inequalities in American society that have some root in the history of slavery and segregation and redlining and so on, and that these matter, and that it's therefore important to think about race in terms of solidarity in a way that you might not want, say, white people to, because they didn't suffer through the same indignities. To to what extent do you agree and disagree with that? Oh, I think I disagree quite a bit, Charles. Uh, I, I always look at premises, the starting premise. So you say inequalities, some rooted in slavery. Well, Charles, prove it. Prove it to me. Show me how the slave owner who lived in 1790 causes a great, great, great grandchild to make poor choices and rob a store in the year 2017. My point, Charles, as you suspect, is that, you know, you got to give me causation, people. It can be either proximate or actual. But if you just give me conclusory statements, that's not going to fly. That dog is not going to hunt. So I don't accept the premise. And so that would be my, my response. And in terms of solidarity, that's the point. Black Americans should not think they're 100% Black because they're not. You can't find me one Black American whose ancestors were in this country before 1800 who is 100% Black. There's no one. No one, Charles. We're all a beautiful mixture of the Englishman from Kent, England, the Irishman from Dublin, the Scottishman from Glasgow, the Native American— We are a beautiful genetic mixture, and so this idea of racial solidarity steers us in a a false direction. Yeah, in the past, yes, there were rules that did so, but we no longer live in that time, Charles. We live in 2023. I mean, if anything, racial classifications are a thumb on the scale or a plus if you happen to be of African descent in this country. But that aside... Racial solidarity doesn't make sense to me because it doesn't align with genetic reality. And in fact, if you embrace your full multiracial past, you will feel more fulfilled and more welcoming and more part of the larger world, the larger universe, the larger universe. I think that's an important point to make because I have heard that argument before. Well, you know, we've got to to, to engage in racial solidarity. 
There are over 40 million black Americans. There are 40 million personalities, life stories, experiences, perspectives. Charles, how do I feel solidarity with someone who, I don't know, grew up in the inner city in the 1990s in Roxbury, Boston, or the south side of Chicago? I don't, because I grew up in a small town in a southern suburb. Those experiences create my sense of natural affinity. So, for example, when I first heard the song North of Richmond by Oliver Anthony, I felt an instant pull because I actually grew up south of Richmond and I knew people who were the poor men south of Richmond. And so when he sang his song about the economic angst of those people, I felt that from lived experience. His race didn't matter to me. His class didn't matter to me. He's a homeboy from Farmville, Virginia. I'm from Chester, Virginia. Whereas some people believe, well, racial solidarity, you should not feel any human connection to him. That's that's just so false. I was going to mention something in in our book and in Week's experience with the Twymans, and granted his experience is his own. This is not everyone's experience, but the the white Twymans he mentions were out shivering in the cold, maybe relating to Oliver Anthony's song. Whereas in his family line, it was the black Twymans who had running water in red brick homes. He makes that point, and I think that's a really interesting point, and then just bringing that back to, to, to that song that's become so popular. This goes back to the question. We're not talking about forgetting history, but we're also talking about how do we navigate the future? And that is not the conversation that we're having. And mm. it's to our detriment. So I these add, are, uh, go on. Go, Charles, can I ask you a question? Sure. One of the things I loved about, for example, your piece in the uh, National Review about the uh, Florida curriculum on slavery, I felt when I read your piece that you were called to be a truth teller. And I felt that same way when I sat next to uh, Professor Roland Fryer during a conference last year in New York City as he was relating his tales. I felt like I was in the presence of a truth teller. Do you, do you think that's true? And if so, why do you feel you're, you're, you're called to be a truth teller? Well, it's kind of you. Thank you. It certainly irritated me that the curriculum was being lied about in the way that it was for a yeah. couple of reasons. The first one is I live in Florida. My children go to school in mm-hmm. Florida. I care a great deal about what's being taught. And if it were true that Florida was teaching children that slavery was good, I would have a problem with that. Right. Second, it matters because this is a subject of great import. The other curriculum that was developed at the same time teaches the Holocaust. I think the two are similar in their scope. And I don't think it helps anybody to have national conversations about slavery or the Holocaust or any of the other seminal moments in history that are filled with falsehoods, let alone falsehoods Mm -hmm. spread by the vice president who Mm -hmm. flew down to Florida Mm -hmm. to make them. On the merits And as I argued in a subsequent piece, I found that a great deal of the more considered objections to the one line out of 191 that mentioned slavery or segregation in that curriculum stripped human beings of their agency and treated them as an undifferentiated mass. It is true that slaves who were stolen from home and transported in terrible conditions and beaten and raped, nevertheless, developed skills, which they used for their own benefit and not just after they'd been emancipated. And I find that extremely annoying to deny it. One of the pieces that is used within the framework is the book by David Hackett Fisher on African founders and the contributions that slaves made and freed slaves made to the United States. And I think that if you wanted to, if you were cynical in the way I believe that the vice president was, you could say, well, David Hackett Fisher is saying it's good that slavery happened because look at all these ideas that he's praising that came out of slave cultures. Well, of course, he's not saying that. That takes a really cynical view. So it really bothered me because it, it, it both wasn't true, but also the implication is actually infantilizing. Mm. I want to ask you this 
Jennifer and, and Wink, what do you disagree on? Because this book is not co-authored in the sense that you might find a book on economic policy where you have two people who agree and they've sat down and some of them have written some bits or provided some data and then they sign their names on it. This is an exchange of ideas. It's an exchange of letters. What do you disagree on about this topic? Charles, I'll take that first. Uh, we, dis- <laughs> we disagree on two things, Charles. One strong, one light. The strong point of disagreement is my idea of old Americans. I think it's the path to a better way forward in racial discourse. Jennifer says, you know, we're not ready for it. Some people might perceive it as, uh, what is it, running away from history, history or no, skipping history. Side-stepping side side history, his- yeah, yeah. History, yeah. We, we went through a great fight, challenge about that for a week or two, because I just felt viscerally that the idea of old Americans is the way to a better future beyond the year 2050. Our light disagreement, there's this association called Jack and Jill. I believe in engaging a larger world. I really do for my upbringing. Some people don't. Jack and Jill is a uh, society for Black moms, which trains Black children to be comfortable in elite positions in America and to live in and be cognizant of their Black heritage. I found that it was perhaps spending too much time removing the potential movers and shakers of Black America tomorrow from mainstream life. But I think Jennifer felt it was like the association of Indian kids that she knew growing up, so she didn't have as much umbrage to Jack and Jill as I did. Take it away, Jen. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think I mean you hit the you hit the nail on the head. I would say I would only counter to say I really love the idea of old Americans. I wish we were there. I don't think we are. So our disagreement, really, as we got into our disagreement, and it was it was a two weeks. Let me tell you what I came to see Wink's point of view, and I value it. I just I'm sad to say I don't think that the rest of the country would see Wink's point of view and that we could Why, why not? For exactly everything that we've been talking about now, we are locked in for whatever reasons into this dialogue that really is in black and white. It is truly in black and white. Is it binary dialogue? It's for the reasons that you discussed. There's no nuance. There's no complexity. There's no value of the individual. If you don't fit into a certain group or not, you're out of the conversation. And that's the tragedy, I would say. But I hope that Wink's idea of old Americans, I hope that our book brings us closer to that ideal. So while we disagreed in the timing of it, and Wink thinks that we're ready now, we don't disagree in the final result of what it could look like for us to see each other as old Americans. And with, what about Jack and Jill, Jen? Yeah, okay. So so let me tell you, <laughs> with Jack and Jill is, is, is foreign to me. I really learned so much about this organization through Wink. When he first mentioned it, for me, it it's a nursery rhyme. I didn't even, I wasn't even unfamiliar with this organization. I do feel that there are opportunities. I mean, the world is it's not always easy. And we do want to find people with whom we have commonalities. I don't think that those commonalities necessarily need to be based on the color of our skin, but whether it's a group for women or a group for gays or a group for Black Americans, as long as we are able to also engage the larger world, as Wink says, I don't really have a problem with it. The question is, and this is the question that remains in my mind, do groups like Jack and Jill take away from us that ability to see ourselves in the larger world? I don't have an answer for that, but that would be, I think that's one of Wink's concerns. So Jennifer, in your opening salvos, you described this meeting you went to in Austin that prompted this whole experience. And you note that when you stood up and you raised your objections, having been invited to do so, or you say your hand went up before your brain wanted yeah. it to. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But when you did that, people gave you the cold shoulder in the room. Has that happened as a result of this book or perhaps in any conversations that you've had that were inspired by this book? 
That is an interesting question. Let me tell you something that I learned most from Wink and where I grew the most. And it's so simple. Don't engage bullies. Whenever someone would push back against an idea, I'd kind of, you know, Wink is my pen pal, right? He's my, my, my confidant. <laughs> and I would tell him, and he's like, why are you even engaging in this? And so I have to say, uh, the answer is a little bit, but not that much. And not that much because... I want to be engaged in real conversations. I don't want to be engaged in the Twitter banter. I don't want to be engaged in the name calling and the sloganizing that we've been talking about. And so I haven't put myself out there, not really out of fear, but out of, I don't care. I don't care. So what care. would a bully look like? A bully as opposed to someone who's just asking you questions. What would the characteristics of a bully be in this context? I love the conversation. If someone were to come to me and ask me, I've had several friends come to me and ask me the question, actually, Charles, that we talked about earlier about rape and mixed ancestry. And I love having that question. I think, you know, answering it in a similar way that we answer it here. It is really more that bullying where it's that lack of understanding or not even wanting to understand or engage if you do not comply. If you do not comply to this point of view, you are ignorant. I must try to force you to it. They're not listening to you. And so that is where the bullying comes in. And and in that regard, I I think both Wink and I, we just usually stop engaging at that point. Right. Because there's where where are you going there? If if I want I want to continue to learn. I know that I'm wrong all the time, more frequently than not. So I want to hear people's other points of views and share mine and, and kind of work out my viewpoints along the way. But if there isn't that give and take and that, I guess, compassion or empathy within a conversation, then it's not, it's, it's a waste of time. So I usually finish these podcasts by asking my guests whether they're optimistic or pessimistic. I don't know if this tracks perfectly with the discussion you had about old Americans or not. But would you say in the immediate future, either of you is optimistic or pessimistic? That's a good question, Charles. That's a good question. I have this idea, Charles, and my idea kind of accommodates pessimism, short-term, but long-term optimism. So short-term, and I consider short-term as maybe the next 10 to 20 years, I would say I am pessimistic. And that would be because I think increasingly people of my generation, people who knew the force of desegregation, whose formative years were lived in the path of upward advancement, where blackness was enterprise, right? Where you were it was a good thing to engage the larger world, where you could disagree without being disagreeable. As my generation, those who knew the 60s and the 70s in the South ages out as we pass away. The people who now have a different mindset, I think, will increasingly control and come to power and control the heights of institutions. However, long term, I am optimistic, Charles, beyond the year 2050, and this is why. In my experience, kids, children, always rebel against their elders. They always rebel against dogma received doctrine. So what will happen, I think, is that when you have these people today who are steeped in dogma and slogan words and manipulation of phrases and terms, when they assume the reins of power, their children are going to, because they're human, they're just going to react against that. They're going to rebel, as young kids always have. And so I foresee a new wave of individuals rising to the ascent but I think it will happen beyond the year 2050. And I'll be long mm. gone, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Jennifer? You know, yeah, I would say my ideas track a lot with Winks, so maybe for a different reason, though. I am not as optimistic about, for reasons I've mentioned, how we're educating in particular, that we will get out of this morass in the next 10 to 20 years. What worries me is being a scholar of countries like China and, and communism more in general. And some of the things that we see happening are just purely Orwellian. I fear that we are opening the door to a rise of a authoritarianism and an illiberalism that will be very hard to disentangle from. 
as an individual, I'm an optimistic individual. I'm an optimistic individual because I have, I'm having this conversation with Wink, with you, Charles. But for the national dialogue, I worry that if we allow some of the trends to become so entrenched that we can't see ourselves beyond them, that it will be revolutionary. And I don't know. I mean, again, looking at the at China, I, uh, there's so many trends that I see now that are similar to the Cultural Revolution. That was devastating to their country. It took years to get out of. And I will say from a geopolitical perspective, yeah, America, if, if, if there's any country that has kind of that openness and that ability to, to grow and to thrive for geopolitical reasons, I hope that we take advantage of that. And that might be in part our saving grace for the long term. All right. Well, thank you to you both so much for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Charles. This was a great conversation. Enjoyed it immensely. Thank you, Charles. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guests, Wink Twyman and Jennifer Richmond. Thank you to you for listening. And we'll see you next week.